We're just going to jump right in. We're going to start with verse 2 and read through verse 13. Just then, some men brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said among themselves, He's blaspheming. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? So you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. Excuse me. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard this, he said, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would work now, um, continue to work. We continue to worship you by attending to your word as it's preached. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us uh, to mold us, shape us, to teach us um, so that our hearts and our minds would be transformed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and to whose glory we give attention. Amen. This passage really highlights the mission of Jesus Christ. In it, Jesus talks about why he came. For instance, in verse 13, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is why I came, to call sinners. He also talks in this passage about his authority to forgive sins. And it seems to me that the thrust of this passage could be summed up nicely in these words. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. This is lifted straight out of 1 Timothy 1.15, where the Apostle Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul goes on to say, And I am the worst of them. In fact, according to the angel of the Lord who appeared to Joseph when uh, Mary was pregnant with Jesus, this is why Jesus is named Jesus, Matthew 121. She will give, him, will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. He is named Jesus because his mission is to save sinners. So for the next several minutes... I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus as he carries out his mission to save sinners as depicted in this particular passage. And I want to divide this this section of passage that we just read. I want to divide it up into four different scenes as we walk our way through it. And the first scene is at a Capernaum home, a home in Capernaum, where he is forgiving a paralytic. Verse 2, let's read verse 2 again. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, 
Mark's gospel tells us that this home that they were in, they were in a home, and it was in the city of Capernaum. And many believe that it was probably the home where uh, Andrew and Peter lived. Uh, Luke and Mark give us many more details as to what happened um, in this particular scene. We know from Mark and the Gospel of Luke that there were four friends, for instance, who brought the paralytic. We know that Jesus was teaching in this home and that the home was crowded, and it was so crowded that the the men carrying the paralytic couldn't even get to the door. Uh, And so what they did is they went up on top of the house, they dug through the roof, and then they lowered the man, the paralytic, through the roof Uh, so that he was right in front of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's account doesn't give us all those details. Rather, Matthew's account focuses on what the Lord says, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I suspect that the paralytic and the the, uh, four men who came uh, and who were listening to Jesus, they were surprised by what Jesus said. I suspect that they were looking for Jesus to say something about this man's healing that You are healed, or I'm going to heal you. Instead, Jesus looks at him with compassion and says, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus starts with the forgiveness. Because that's the greater issue. That's the more important issue here. Forgiveness is more important than physical healing. Forgiveness of sins is more important than physical healing. We tend to get our values mixed up. We focus a lot on the body and sometimes very little on the soul. There are a lot of good-looking people with tan skin and trim waistlines who have a cancerous soul because they have not fed on the Word of God because they have no faith in Christ. They nourish and exercise their bodies, but their souls are weak and flabby. They are not feeding their souls on Christ through Scripture and church. Just as a side note here, um, Jesus never gets these values mixed up. He never gets them mixed up. If you, want to, if you want to keep straight what's important, what's really important in this world, then focus on what Jesus thinks is important and what he thinks isn't so important. And here he's focused on forgiveness, not physical healing. He says your sins are forgiven. And so we can draw our first lesson here. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Or put another way, he mediates the forgiveness of, forgiveness of sins from God to us. Now, someone has pointed out that Jesus, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has done a lot of incredible things up to this point in chapter 9. Earlier in the gospel, he healed a man who had leprosy. Earlier in this gospel, he healed a, uh, a centurion's son who was close to death, and he healed him. Um, he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and he, he healed her instantly so that the fever was gone, and instantly she got up and began to serve. Uh, He stopped a raging storm, uh, a storm so fierce that the disciples, some of them who were seasoned fishermen, were scared to death of this storm, and he stilled it with a word, and he also cast out demons. But none of these compare with forgiveness of sins. None of these compares, compares with the statement that he just uttered to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. In all these other actions, people were made right in their bodies, Or in the case of the storm, the threat of life was dealt with. But here, Jesus is making this man completely right in his relationship with Almighty God. And what has this man done? Nothing. Except he's come to Jesus, and he couldn't even do that on his own. Other people had to bring him. We're not told if he kept any of the law. We're not told if he even tried to keep the law at all. 
Jesus sees that he and his friends have faith in him, but in terms of any kind of effort, we're not told about that. And so we're reminded that we don't earn forgiveness. We don't buy forgiveness. It is a gift from God. It is a grace from God through Christ to forgive us. We're also reminded that we're in need of forgiveness. We're in need of forgiveness. I doubt very much that the paralytic was offended by Jesus forgiving him his sins. I'm guessing he believed himself to be a sinner. Such was the culture and the thinking of that day. But I can easily imagine if the same thing happened today and Jesus started with, Courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some people might respond with, What sins? Or, How dare you judge me? Are you judging me right now? Nevertheless, what a relief to hear your sins are forgiven. The things that you have done wrong are forgiven. Even the worst things that you have done, God no longer holds those against you. Believer, if you have come to Christ for salvation, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are wiped out. You are cleansed. Your sins are forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says, We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that salvation starts with forgiveness of all your sins. We move on to the second scene, which is at a home in Capernaum, the same home where now he is debating some, scri- some scribes. Look at verses 3 and 4. At this, some of the scribes said among themselves, he's blaspheming. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking all these things in your heart? So some scribes are there, and they're no doubt investigating Jesus, checking out his credentials. Um, And when they hear this, that your sins are forgiven, they hear him say this, they're ticked. They're offended, and they're offended on God's behalf because they're thinking in their hearts only God can forgive sin. This is what the Gospel of Mark and Luke tell us. They, They think he's blaspheming because they're saying only God can forgive sin. But, of course, Jesus is God, right? It's tempting to want to give the scribes a pass because, you know, how could they know that Jesus is divine? But Jesus says to them, uh, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? Their thoughts and their murmurings about Christ are evil. From Jesus' perspective, they of all people should know by now who he is. But they have refused the truth that has been evidenced in his ministry. It's not that they couldn't put two and two together. It's just they have put it together and they reject it. They reject Christ. And here's the irony. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of diminishing God's glory. And the the reality is Jesus is not blaspheming. They're blaspheming by what they say about Jesus. Because God has chosen to send his son Jesus to reveal his glory. And so by tarnishing Jesus, they're the ones who are tarnishing God's glory. Because God's glory is clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus seeks to convince them. Verses 5 through 7. Let me read that again. For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up and went home. So Jesus says, okay, you don't believe that I can forgive sins. You don't believe that when I say... Your sins are forgiven, that his sins are forgiven. So let me demonstrate my authority to you in a more tangible way. And he tells the man, get up and and walk. So the man gets up and walks, takes his mat, and he 
and he goes home. A clear demonstration of the authority of Christ in another area of life that other people don't have. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He heals this man to show that he has that authority. The combination of his pronouncement of forgiveness and his healing of the paralytic demonstrates that the same word that restores strength and health to this man's limbs, that same word can also pronounce legitimately on God's behalf, on his father's behalf, the forgiveness of this man's sins, that he has been put right with God. There's no denying that when he says sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. His pronouncement of forgiveness of sins is effective. It's effective. Jesus is the one with divine authority. That can't be denied. He says he, he speaks the word of authority. He says to demons, come out, and they come out. He says to disease, be gone, and it's gone. He says to the wind and the waves, be still, and instantly it's still. He says to the dead, come forth, and they come forth. So when he says your sins are forgiven, they are, he is authorized to speak on God's behalf. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Forgiveness is found in him. Colossians 1.14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him, Christ. And there's a corollary to this truth. The reality that forgiveness of sins is found in Christ means also outside of Christ there is no forgiveness. Outside of Christ, there is no forgiveness. I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther here, who said outside of Christendom, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no reconciliation with God outside of Christ. Your sins remain on the books, and you are still condemned. You can do all the good you want. You can sell all you have and give it to the poor. You can resolve to say only nice things for the rest of your life. But that does not purchase you forgiveness. That does not give you forgiveness. You can come up with all kinds of schemes that you want to obtain forgiveness of your sins, but you won't have it apart from Jesus Christ. That will not put you right with God. Forgiveness is only found in Jesus. We move on to the third scene at a tax station by the Sea of Galilee, verse 9. As Jesus went on, I'm reading from verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up. And followed him. As far as I know, the Holman Christian Standard is the only one that translates that tax office. Uh, usually it's tax booth or uh, something else. I've never read, read the terminology there, tax office. Anyway, I, I just picture, you know, a, a building like in our own day and age when I read tax office. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Anyway, we know from the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke that this interaction here takes place beside the Sea of Galilee. It takes place beside the Sea of Galilee. It's likely that Matthew was stationed on the Sea of Galilee where he collected taxes as people crossed over and they got off, they got off whatever boat or transport they had. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, how much do you know about first century tax collectors? I know it's a very narrow field of interest. <laughs> But how much do you know? I mean, how were they esteemed in society? Do you think like this or like this? What do you think? Okay, yeah, most of you thumbs down, and you know that. You know, you know that from Scripture, because you've read the Gospels, and you know that they were not highly esteemed in Scripture. Tax collectors were Jewish. They were Jews. 
uh, who collected taxes from their fellow Jews on behalf of the Romans, on behalf of the Roman overlords, on behalf of the hated Romans. Uh, so they were not popular. Uh, their Jewish, uh, fellow Jewish citizens saw them as unpatriotic, that they were disloyal to Israel by collecting, uh, fleecing their own people on behalf of this foreign entity who ruled over them. They saw them as ceremonially unclean because they had this constant interaction with Gentiles and they went in their homes and so on and so forth. They saw them as extortionists because all Rome cared about was getting the amount that they set. But the tax collectors, they could collect. Rome didn't care how much you collected just as long as you got what Rome got. Well, often they would collect more than what Rome was required in order to line their own coffers and in order to become wealthy themselves. To give you a flavor of how tax collectors were, view, were viewed in that day, I just want to run through some verses here. Uh, consider, for instance, Matthew 5.46, where Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. This is Jesus' words. All right, he's, he's encouraging us to love our enemies. And here, here he says, if you love those who love you, even those tax collectors have the sense to do that. All right, uh, Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus knows that in, popular, popular, in the culture of that day, the tax collectors are lumped in with other sinners, with drunks and gluttons. Matthew eighteen seventeen, but even if he doesn't pay attention even to the but if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. In other words, if there is uh, Jesus is talking about someone who needs to be disfellowshipped, disfellowshipped from a church because they refuse to repent and be reconciled. And uh, so you should let them be like an unbeliever and a tax collector, like the worst of the worst. Matthew 21, 31, Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. There he's talking to some others. And he says, even the tax collectors and the prostitutes that are lumped together are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. In other words, he's picking out the worst possible examples of society. Luke 7:29 And when all the people including the tax collectors heard this they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism so appealing was the message of John the Baptist that even the the most recalcitrant of society the tax collectors uh, even they were acknowledging God's way of righteousness Luke 15:1 all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him in Luke 18, uh, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he picks these two because they respond in totally different ways than expected. The Pharisee, the good man, uh, responds very poorly or is praying an awful sort of prayer. While it's the tax collector the very, that everyone acknowledges as the bad guy who prays a decent prayer of mercy, who acknowledges his, his sinfulness before God. So you get the idea here of how lowly and despised the tax collectors were in that day. They're not nearly as highly regarded as IRS agents today. <laughs> uh, that's, that's actually somewhat true. They're, 
They, they, are, they are the dregs of society. I don't know if you consider the IRS, agent, IRS today the dregs of society. Maybe you would. I don't know. Um, you're not necessarily their fan. I get that. Um, but here in verse 9, Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. He calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples. We have seen already Jesus pronounces forgiveness. We have seen him defend his authority to forgive. And now he exemplifies the depths and the extremes of his forgiveness by calling a tax collector to be one of his disciples. When Jesus called Matthew, he gives a clear witness to the depth of his forgiveness of sins. And so we can learn from this. Number three, Jesus calls the very sinful, the very sinful, he calls the wicked to be his disciples. He calls the pariahs of society to be his disciples. Jesus goes after sinners. He goes after sinners. In fact, it was in connection with another tax collector, uh, Zacchaeus, that we have this mission statement from Jesus. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And look how Matthew responds. How does he respond? He gets up and he leaves his tax collector station and he follows Jesus. Matthew's gospel, um, in terms of the way it's written, Matthew has arranged his gospel. It's not strictly chronological. It's arranged uh, topically. Um, and in chapters 8 and 9, what Matthew has done is he bunch, he's put a bunch, of, a bunch of miracles together in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And... Um, by my count, there are 10 individual miracles in chapters 8 and 9, uh, plus a brief mention of an evening of miracles where many healings and exorcisms take place. But if I were going to follow the early church fathers who taught and preached on this particular passage, I would also add verse 9 as a miracle. Um, because the early church considered the tax collector's sudden obedience to Jesus uh, to be a miracle as well. The fact that Matthew got up from his lucrative tax collecting station and followed Jesus to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they considered to be as much of a miracle as the healing of the leper, as the resurrection of the little girl, as the stilling of the storm, and so forth. And isn't it a miracle? Isn't it a miracle? Isn't, it, isn't the salvation of any sinful person a miracle? Isn't conversion, the conversion of anyone a miracle? I, I, personally, I personally think conversion is, conversion is one of the greatest miracles of all. To see a person who has been following their own way, going after their own heart, leading their own life, ignoring Christ, ignoring Scripture, ignoring God, and so forth, and then they come to Christ and they, they, they turn from one direction to another and start following Christ. That's a miracle. I, We've had different people we've had contact with that, who uh, have been completely transformed. <laughs> I mean, their, their, their character, their habits were so rough. Uh, and, then they be, and then they came to Christ and they just, they just beam. Uh, and, and they're witnessing and they're sharing and they love the Lord. Um, conversion is a, is a fantastic, is a tremendous miracle. Well, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he is not shy about the kinds of sinners he calls. He doesn't just go after respectable sinners. He goes after the worst of the worst, too. 
I like the way uh, Brennan Manning puts it in, in uh, one of his books, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, Here is revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives and street people and superstars and farmers and hookers and addicts, IRS agents, AIDS victims, and even used car salesmen. I, I don't know what, he, what his experience was with used car salesmen, but Jesus not only talks with these people, but he dines with them. He eats and drinks with them. Well, the, the fourth scene then is a, is a party at Matthew's home. It's a party at Matthew's home. Verses 10 to 13. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Matthew doesn't give us much detail as the Gospels of Mark and Luke do. Those Gospels tell us that this house that he was in was, in fact, Matthew's house. It was Matthew's house. Uh, And Luke also tells us, the Gospel of Luke tells us that it was a great reception or a great feast or a grand banquet, depending on the translation. In other words, he put on a huge reception, and we're told also that it was for Jesus. In other words, it was in Jesus′ honor, but it it was for Jesus. And Matthew, uh, Matthew invites all of his friends. Now, the Pharisees are shocked at seeing Jesus associating with known sinners. Not just, and by sinners here, he doesn't mean just, the Pharisees don't mean just those who aren't Pharisees, but those people who are publicly known as, you know, bad eggs, like tax collectors. And Jesus associates with them. Um, you know, who, Matthew invites all of his friends. Well, who are Matthew's friends? <laughs> He doesn't have a lot of, as a tax collector, he probably doesn't have a lot of friends from normal society. He himself is a pariah, a black sheep of society, and so all of his friends are also in the same boat. And so he, so he organizes, he, he, he invites them, many tax collectors and others who are on the fringes of society. And Jesus is there eating with them instead of avoiding them, like he should, right? Well, why is he there? He explains why with a perfectly logical illustration. What good is a doctor who won't see the sick? What good is a doctor who won't see sick people? What good is a doctor who will only associate with those who are in good health? Jesus' point is that he came for the sick. He came for those who are soul sick, sick in their souls. He came for the wicked. He came for the evil. Lesson four, Jesus intentionally pursues sinners. He intentionally pursues sinners in order to heal them. He pursues them in order to heal them, in order to make them well. That's the whole point of the doctor illustration. A doctor goes in order to heal the sick in body. Jesus goes to heal the sick in soul. He invites people to follow him that they might be transformed. He preaches to them the message of forgiveness and also the message of repentance. He and John the Baptist both preached when they start, both of them, when they started their ministries, they preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change your ways. God has given you the opportunity. So let's be clear that Jesus, who pursues sinners, pursues them for their transformation, that they may 
be rescued not only from the penalty of their sin, but also from the practice of their sin. Matthew leaves behind his tax trade. Zacchaeus, when he was saved, he paid back four times what he had extorted from people. There's a change. There's a transformation. There's forgiveness of sins, but there's also a transformation. There's a leaving behind of sins as well. And it's not perfection. Obviously, we are not perfected in this life, and we still struggle with sins. But there is a new orientation. We are headed in following Christ. We seek to follow the Lord. Other tax collectors who were convicted by the message of repentance stopped collecting more than they were authorized to, according to Luke chapter 3, verse 13. So there's a change. There's a transformation. Jesus told the Apostle Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Why? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. So salvation involves being forgiven our sins, but it's also being sanctified, being made holy, being made godly becoming more Christ-like, abandoning the old life, the old habits that were sinful, and turning and following the Lord. Forgiveness and a new way of life. Last week I mentioned a speech that was given by Calvin Robinson a couple weeks ago. Let me just quote him again. Uh, He says in the middle of his speech, of course, no, he didn't say that. He said, of course, atheists often parrot the words, God is love, again, without any understanding. Yes, God is love, and he sets the terms, not us. Another one we'll hear about plenty of is inclusivity. Shouldn't the church be more inclusive? Again, it's a play on words people use to virtue signal, to appear good rather than being good. The church should absolutely be inclusive, he says. Christ spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, but it is they who went away changed, not he. It's they who went away changed, not he. Christ came for, the, for everyone. He came for all sinners for the purpose of healing them and transforming them to change their lives because it was their sin that was getting them into misery and condemnation and guilt. He has provided for their salvation, their salvation from sin and its consequent destruction, condemnation, and misery. And in his pursuit to save them from their sins, he is not put off by their sins. Christ is not put off by a person's sins. Their sins don't get in his way of going after them in order to save them. He calls sinners to repentance and faith, and he extends the invitation. Let me just uh, wrap up with three, uh, three applications, if you will. Number one, and these aren't in your outline, um, if you are a believer, your sins are forgiven. I want you to know that. If you're a believer, your sins are forgiven. Your slate has been wiped clean through Jesus Christ. Your sins will not be held against you on the day of judgment. You are in Christ. When you joined with Christ, your sins were imputed to him, and his righteousness was imputed to you. You have Christ's righteousness. You have been justified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, God made the sinless Christ to be our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A great exchange took place at the cross. All of our sins on Christ, and they were judged there. All of his righteousness on us. 
If you're a believer, your sins are forgiven. If you're not a believer, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he is pursuing you. He is pursuing you. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Your being here today to hear this particular scripture message is another action he has taken to convince you that you need to put your faith in Christ, that that's where forgiveness of sins is. He is seeking to convince you that you are a sinner, that you are guilty of many sins, and that forgiveness of all your sins is available to you in him. And that while it is true that your soul is sick with your sins, he has come so that you can be made well. And how do you do that? How do you receive that gift of salvation? You join your life to his. You give your life to him. You begin to follow him. You leave your life of sin. You entrust your life to him. The third lesson is this. Fellow believers, fellow Christians, as the body of Christ, we are to be involved in this pursuit of sinners for their good. We're to be involved in this pursuit of sinners. Jesus continues to pursue sinners today, and he does it through his body, which is the church. He does it through his people, through our witness. So don't look down on anyone that the Lord brings your way. Never consider anyone who crosses your path as unworthy or as poor candidates to hear the truth about Jesus. Don't be like the Pharisees who despised others and looked looked down on them. We are to be like Jesus who ate with sinners and tax collectors. And he did so willingly, he did so wholeheartedly, and he did so um, with an intent for their good. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Freely offered to us, but it was costly to you. uh, The sacrifice of your own son. Um, Lord Jesus, we praise you for your willing sacrifice, your voluntary sacrifice to come and to live that perfect life that we could never live, to go to the cross as the sinless one. And because you were sinless, you did not die for your own sins, but rather you were available to take upon yourself the sins of the whole world. And how could one man pay for the sins of so many people? Because that one man was not only man, but was also God. And so his gift, his atonement is infinite. Um, and so God was on the, and so Christ was on the cross reconciling us to God. And we praise you and thank you for that. It's my prayer that if anyone is in this room who does not yet have a relationship with you, that they will put their faith and their trust in you and experience that forgiveness of sins. Help us as your people uh, to be witnesses uh, on your behalf. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.